This week, we're talking about maximizing sharpness, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. It's been a little while since the last episode, and for that, I apologize. But we are here and we have a subject that I feel like is an important one. And I don't think that I've talked about on this particular podcast before. And that's talking about maximizing sharpness and different techniques, both in the field and in post-processing that we can do to maximize sharpness. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. Before we jump in, however, I do want to let you guys know a couple things. Since our last episode, I've released a new tutorial that is called Mastering Dodging and Burning. Also, I have, I believe, one, maybe two spots left on my Icelandic winter adventure this winter. Uh, You can find both of those things over at nickpagephotography.com. Also, another thing that I never even got a chance to mention to you guys, and for that I also apologize, is that Greg Benz and myself are leading the the first of our post-processing boot camps. This is going to be taking place in July in Seattle, and it's sold out before I could even mention it to you guys. It seems that there's some interest in it, so I think the plan is that we're going to do more of these, and that's going to probably be happening in 2020. People that sign up for my newsletters, they get early notifications of the stuff like that. So if you're interested in any of that kind of thing, go over to nickpagephotography.com and sign up for my newsletter. Those people get early notification for all of this stuff and you don't have to rely on me talking about it on a podcast to hear about it. Okay, so with that, let's jump into this week's episode where we talk about maximizing sharpness. Probably more so than other photography genres, landscape photographers are obsessed with sharpness. That's why we are so picky about those cameras that we use, the lenses that we use. We are addicted to sharpness. Maybe this episode should be called Addicted to Sharpness because let's face it, we're addicted to sharpness. We spend ridiculous amounts of money buying the best glass, the best filters to put on our lenses. And if we don't know what we're doing in the field and in post-processing, we're really not getting the most out of this expensive gear that we have. So in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about different techniques to maximize sharpness. So the first one, and this is going to be relevant to pretty much every camera, every lens out there, is that when you can, shoot at your sharpest apertures. All lenses kind of have what is referred to as a sweet spot in their aperture range. Typically, that's going to be between like f7.1 to f11, somewhere in that range. f8 is kind of a nice, easy one to remember, but it kind of varies based on the maximum aperture of the lens. For example, if you have an f1.4 lens, it's typically going to be sharpest at probably like f5.6 to f7.1, something like that. But if you have like an f4 lens, that's probably going to be sharpest at about f11. So I'm not saying that you have to go out and test this stuff because most likely there are people that have already done that for you and they have way more time on on their hands than you do. So quickly do a Google search and find out where your lens is sharpest. And then when 
depth of field is not an issue, you can use that aperture to produce it, your lens's sharpest results. Now I say when depth of field is not an issue because there's oftentimes the depth of field becomes an issue. Anytime that you're really close to a foreground object or anytime that you're shooting telephoto, depth of field becomes a bit of an obstacle that we have to overcome if we want our frame to be sharp from front to back. If we want both our foreground and our background to be as sharp as they can be, we have to do some things to make that happen. So the first and easiest thing that you can do to achieve that deep depth of field is to stop down your lens. So typically people talk about stopping down to like F16 to achieve as much depth of field as they can. But you'll also from time to time hear people recommending to stop down to F18, F22, and there are some serious problems with that. So you can stop down to F22 and typically that's going to achieve a large amount of depth of field. But the problem is, is that you get into a thing called diffraction. Diffraction is the enemy of sharpness and image quality. Essentially, all you need to know is that if you stop down your lens too far, you start to damage your image quality and you end up with a very soft image. All lenses are different. It kind of depends on, on the quality of the lens, but most lenses start to run into diffraction problems beyond F16. So for that reason, I only ever stop down to F16 unless there's just no way I can do it any other way. And there are a few situations where that comes into play where I do have to stop down a little bit extra. We'll jump into that a little bit later on. But just know that anytime you're stopping down beyond F16, you're starting to sacrifice sharpness. Sometimes that's not a big deal. Sometimes that is a big deal, especially if you're in a situation where it you don't really need that much depth of field or there's no reason that you couldn't do it in multiple exposures. If you're somebody that is editing from one raw file, let's say that you are a Lightroom only editor or maybe you're shooting film. Yes, there are a few people like that out there still. Isn't that right, Ben Horn? You're going to have to get it in one shot. Therefore, you need to stop down as much as required to get enough depth of field to get things sharp from front to back. Okay, so in this scenario of doing things all in one shot, where do you focus? There's something called the hyperfocal distance. There's hyperfocal distance calculators out there, and essentially it is a distance from your lens that is calculated by the closest thing to your camera, the aperture that you're using, and the furthest thing from the camera. And the problem with the hyperfocal distance calculator is not only that it's time consuming, slows you down big time, it's kind of been rendered obsolete by a thing called focus stacking, and we'll talk more about that. But generally speaking, the quick tip for telling people where to focus into their frame is typically focus a third of the way into the frame. So if you're looking at your frame and you divide it vertically into three sections, equally into three sections, you're going to want to focus on that bottom third line there. That is going to be about a third of the way into the frame, and typically that's where a hyperfocal distance is going to fall, somewhere in that area. But we have the benefit of shooting digitally, where we can take multiple photos and then compare them against each other and figure out exactly where that is. So in the time that it takes you to figure out your hyperfocal distance, you could just as easily focus on rock number one, focus on rock number two, focus on rock number three, and then decide later 
which one produces the greatest depth of field. The challenge always with landscape photography is that we're dealing with depth and we're often trying to introduce the sense of depth into a photo and it's very difficult to achieve that depth sometimes if you have foreground elements that are out of focus. So you always want to make sure that those things that are closest to the camera are always nice and sharp. Now there's something called focus stacking. Focus stacking is the method that I use most often anytime that I can because rather than achieving what hyperfocal distance will do, which is getting things quote unquote acceptably sharp, focus stacking will get things perfectly sharp. If I have a non-moving scene, I can actually stop down to my lens's sharpest aperture, use that throughout the entire frame, and I'm going to get the absolute sharpest image I could possibly get, sharper than the lens is even capable of, given the scene and the amount of depth of field. This is one of the many benefits of processing in Photoshop and learning how to blend multiple exposures together I can achieve things through multiple photos that I just could not achieve with only one. So the general workflow for doing a focus stack is when you're in the field, I like to either start back at infinity or on the closest subject to me. And let's say that we're working from front to back. I will focus on the very closest thing to the camera. I will focus on that, take a shot. Then I'll focus just slightly deeper into the frame, take another shot. And then a little further in, take another shot. A little further back, take another shot until I finally get to infinity. Now, how many of these kind of frames that you take completely depends on just how close you are to your subject, what aperture you're using. There's, there's some variables there. If I'm in a focus stacking situation, I need to do probably at least three in order for it to be worth my time to do the focus stack. Otherwise, if I'm, for example, if I'm shooting from like waist height, most likely I don't even need to do a focus stack. But with a wide angle lens, the lower you get to the ground, the more likely you are to need to focus stack to get that full depth of field and to get everything sharp from front to back. So for example, let's say that we have nothing but rocks and mountains in our frame where nothing is moving, nothing's blowing into the wind. I could just as easily shoot with my lens at f8 where it operates with the absolute most sharpness I can get and get that entire depth of field through focus stacking to really maximize my sharpness. But there are some scenarios where this is not going to work. So let's think about shooting wildflowers with a mountain in the background. Anytime you're photographing something that is moving, focus stacking becomes a whole lot more challenging, a whole lot more difficult. It's not impossible, but it's a whole lot more difficult. So imagine this scene where you have wildflowers blowing around in your foreground and you attempt to do this focus stack. The problem becomes that the flowers are not in the same positions from frame to frame. So when you go to blend these together, you're going to have ghosting issues. You're going to have just a whole bunch of issues, actually. Also, light becomes a problem because if you're needing to use longer exposures, you're going to end up with blurry flowers. So there's a lot of challenges that come into play when you have a foreground that is moving around and focus stacking becomes more of a problem. This is going to be one of those situations where maybe I'll shoot my background at an F8 or F11 because the mountain is not blowing around. <laughs> it's, the, it's the wildflowers that are blowing around. So I might as well get a nice tack sharp background shooting with F8, F11. And then when I'm shooting my foreground frames, I'm going to need to make sure that I am A, 
getting a fast enough shutter speed so nothing is getting blurred out. Also, I'm going to need to make sure that I am B, getting enough depth of field to where I'm not needing to do as many frames blended together. So this is a situation where I might increase my ISO and stop down to something more like a F16, F18, whatever I need to do to try to get that foreground in as few frames as possible because they're not going to blend well together. So this is one of those situations where I am stopping down beyond that F16 and I'm increasing my ISO, something that we're not often doing in a landscape photography situation, especially shooting on a tripod. But blurry wildflowers, not the coolest photo in the world. So this is one of those scenarios where focus stacking becomes very challenging, but we also need to increase our ISO so we can increase our shutter speed and freeze those moving elements. On the subject of focusing and where to focus and all of that stuff, one of the things that I actually do that I think a lot of landscape photographers shooting on a tripod would greatly benefit from is I actually use back button focus when I'm doing landscape photography. Back button focus is typically regarded as this sports or wildlife feature, uh, something that you know sports photographers use, but it's really handy for landscape photography because for one, if you're shooting in kind of a sunset situation where the camera is kind of uh, struggling to find focus in some of that darker foreground. The cool thing is, is that it's only going to focus when you tell it to focus. When you hit the shutter button, it's not going to attempt to find focus every time. So you can get your focus with the back button focus button. And then from then on, when you hit the shutter button, it's only going to take a photo. It's not going to attempt to focus every time. So that can be a time saver, especially when you're in those challenging focusing situations. I'm not somebody to manually focus every single shot. I know lots of people, lots of landscape photographers love to just manually focus, but I feel like autofocus systems are probably more reliable than my eye most of the time, as long as there's enough light. It's not until things get really dark during blue hour that the camera starts to struggle, and that's when I typically switch over to manually focusing. It's just a huge time saver to not have to sit there and magnify every single shot and manually focus everything, especially when the camera is going to do a perfect job. So all of this kind of covers some of the things that we can do out in the field to maximize sharpness. But the thing is, none of this is going to matter if we do a terrible job of sharpening once we get stuff back into the computer and it's time to do our post-production. Generally speaking, there are two types of sharpness that we're going to be adding when we're editing. We're going to be adding capture sharpening, which is essentially sharpening at the very beginning of the workflow. Every raw file requires a little bit of sharpening just to bring it back to some semblance of reality because raw files are incredibly dull and flat. And so we need to add that sharpness just a little bit at the very beginning. And then there's output sharpening. And that output sharpening happens at the very end of the workflow and it changes based on what that photo is going to be used for. So let's talk about capture sharpening. Capture sharpening for me always happens in either Lightroom or Adobe Camera Raw, and I like to do a very mild, a very conservative amount of sharpening at this point because I don't want to have to go back and, and decrease the amount of sharpening. I don't want to introduce any kind of artifacts or weirdness right at the beginning of my workflow. I want to start very conservative. I can always add more later on. So for that reason, my sharpening is, is very subtle. We're talking about 20 points or something, 15 points 
uh, if we're talking about the the detail tab inside of Lightroom. Also, I add a deconvolution sharpening. Deconvolution is essentially when the detail slider in Lightroom is slid all the way to the right. If you go all the way to the right in Lightroom, that is called deconvolution. The same is true for Adobe Camera Raw. And if you go all the way to the left with that detail slider, it's actually going to be high pass sharpening. So I prefer deconvolution sharpening. It's hard to even describe the difference, but I prefer deconvolution sharpening, which is slid to the right. Also, one of the most important things that you can do at this stage is to mask out some of your sharpening. By default, when you import something into Lightroom or Adobe Camera Raw, every single pixel is getting sharpened equally, which makes zero sense if you have a big open blue sky or something like that. So what you need to do is hold down Alter Option and slide the masking slider to the right. And as you do that, it's going to get more and more picky about which pixels are being sharpened. That way it's actually sharpening details rather than just pixels and noise. This is especially helpful anytime you're editing a night scene or something that you shot at a higher eye. So that way you're not sharpening noise, you're only sharpening details. So essentially that is capture sharpening. I pretty much do the same thing every time. Output sharpening is different based on whether something is going to the web or to print or how large it's being exported. So essentially you want to add just lots of sharpening to stuff that's going to the web and a, and a slightly more subtle sharpening for things that are going to print. If you think about it, when a print is made, it's far more likely that people are going to walk right up to it and look at the fine details. But those fine details are completely lost when you're posting, you know, a, a thousand pixel wide image on Instagram or Facebook or something. Those fine details don't matter nearly as much. So you can hit it with a whole lot more sharpening. But when you're going to print, you want to take fine control over where the sharpening goes, as well as the amount that is there. You don't want to be creating artifacts because people will see them. But if you're creating artifacts on a shot that's going to Facebook or Instagram or even fairly small on a website, those fine details don't matter as much and you can be a little bit more aggressive, actually a lot of bit more aggressive with your sharpening. So generally speaking, that that is output sharpening. There's also kind of a resize and sharpen technique where you actually blow up an image, add sharpening to it, and then decrease it. That way you're sharpening the fine details. I'm not going to go into all of these things, but there's some really cool panels out there that I actually prefer for my sharpening. One is TK Actions. TK Actions has a really nice web sharpening feature. And the other one is called Web Sharpener Extension Panel. And this is from a guy named Andres Resch. And that's the panel that I've been using lately. I, Aaron Bobnick actually turned me onto this panel and it is really, really powerful. It's a panel just for web sharpening and it works really well. It does a whole bunch of different things and it gives you a lot of control over what it's doing. So those are a couple just really quick and easy ways of adding web sharpening. There's no need to overcomplicate it by trying to do all of this yourself, especially when you can just pick up a panel for like 20 bucks and hit a button and get really excellent sharpening every time. So that's that's what I prefer to do. But regardless, these are the different things that you can do to really take control over sharpness in the field. 
Keep an eye on moving elements. Make sure that your shutter speed is fast enough. Pay attention to where you're focusing. Use hyperfocal distance if you have to, if you're a one-shot kind of person. Focus stack when you can. Use the sharpest apertures of your lens when you can, when it's available to do. Make sure that you're taking control over your sharpening in post-processing and give back button focus a try, especially when you're shooting on a tripod. It's really nice for landscape photography. Awesome. Well, that's about all I have for you this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Sorry it's been a little while since the last episode, but we'll get another one out to you here before too long. All right. Thank you guys so much. Take it easy, everybody. Bye-bye.